Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast. Helping you invest in property for freedom, choice and profit. You'll learn new, innovative and multiple streams of property income. Whether you want to start, scale or systemize. And even if you don't have deposits. Hi, I'm Peter Jones, Chartered Surveyor, Author and Property Investor. And this is the Progressive Property Podcast. And before I start, I just want to thank you for listening to this podcast. It's just amazing when I meet people who say, I listen to your podcast all the time and I get emails from people saying that you've been working your way through over 100 episodes just to catch up, which is absolutely amazing. And I hope you're getting a lot of really good value from it. But most of all, I hope it's going to help you to do whatever it is you want to do in property and to achieve your property goals. Now, in this short series of podcasts, we're working through some of your questions. And as you can probably imagine, I get lots and lots of questions about property, which is great. And I collect them and I then deal with them in batches. And so I'm doing a big batch of questions. And I hope by going through these questions, this is going to help you as well. And as I said in one of the earlier podcasts, some of these questions are actually a bit off the wall. And you might think, oh, that's a strange question. I don't even know if I want to know the answer to that. But actually, when you start digging in and start thinking about property in a bigger context and trying to work out all the different implications and ramifications of the question and a possible answer, all sorts of great learnings come out. So stick with me and bear with me while I do this and hopefully you will learn loads, which perhaps on the face of it, you'll think, well, that's surprising because that question actually isn't a question I've ever asked. So there we go. So the first question today is, can any region of the UK work for a property investor or do I have to relocate? Well, can property investing work in any region in the UK? Of yes, of course. There are going to be deals everywhere. No matter where you're located, you will find deals. But first of all, what you need to do as a starting point, I'd suggest, is to research which particular property strategies actually work in your region. Because not every property strategy is going to work in every region, or at least every city in every region. Now, having said that, I've come to the conclusion after studying this over and over and over and after doing the goldmine session at Masterclass many times, I've come to the conclusion that most strategies do work everywhere, or at least almost everywhere. So, for example, commercial conversions, you can pretty much do those anywhere. HMOs, you can pretty much do those anywhere, although obviously you have to be aware of Article 4, but Article 4 aside, Will HMOs work in most regions? Yes. Will HMOs work in most cities? Yes. But you may be producing HMOs for different types of tenants. For example, in one area, you may be producing for, I don't know, a lower demographic client and for as in client, as in tenant. Uh, In other areas, it may be young professionals. I don't know. But there will be HMOs that you can do pretty much anywhere. What about service accommodation? Yes, service accommodation pretty much works everywhere. Rent, rent will work everywhere. Deal packaging is going to work everywhere because you're just packaging up the type of deals that do work there. Things like options and instalment contracts and delayed completions could work anywhere. They're not geographically specific. That's really all about finding a motivated seller. And of course, the big one, the one which I love, as you know, is flips. Will flips work anywhere? Yeah, pretty much flips will work anywhere. Because what makes a flip? Well, it's buying the property at the right price and it's probably buying a property to do up and add a bit of value to and then selling it on. So that's not really sort of geographically specific. Now, the only strategy which is probably not universal 
and which is more geographically specific is buy to lets especially if you're going to do buy to lets using the brr model the buy refurbish refinance model now please don't misunderstand me i'm not saying that you can't do buy to lets i'm just saying that it could be tricky if you want to use the brr model and we'll think about that in a moment but of course, it doesn't really matter where you are. Wherever you are, you can buy a property and you can put a tenant in. But the big question mark is going to be what sort of return you're going to get. If you're going to buy a property in London, for example, and the return's only 3 or 4%, why would you do that? Possibly for capital growth? Yeah, okay, I appreciate that. But capital growth isn't something that we can bank on. And even at the time of recording, the market in London has slowed down. Some bits of London have dipped a little bit. But yeah, by and large, generally speaking, over a 10, 20, 50 year period, you're probably going to have good capital growth in London. I accept that. But if you want to get cash flow, 3%, 4%, 5% is probably not going to do it for you. But of course, you could buy a property and put a tenant in. So in that sense, buy to let will work. But if you want to do BRR, buy, refurbish, refinance, then that's probably not going to work where the yields are so low. The other thing which is going to cap it, by the way, is the stress test which the banks do, which means that there's a natural range of values for properties where the BRR works really well. And roughly speaking, it's between 40,000, which is the minimum valuation which you need in order to get a mortgage, and probably around about the sort of 160 mark. I haven't actually calculated it precisely, but 160 odd thousand pounds. It's going to depend from on new lenders who've got different criteria, by the way, so it's not like there's one hard and fast figure, but roughly around about £160,000, which is probably the top end, because you're going to be limited by the stress test. If you don't know what I mean by that, don't worry about it for now. Just take my word for it. That's the range you're looking at. But one of the big advantages of using the BRR model is that you can recycle your money out and you can use your money much more efficiently. So it's well worth thinking about if you want to do buy-to-lets. So here's what I would suggest you do. I'd suggest that you start by thinking about which strategies work in your area, and then from those strategies, you can potentially choose your 70-20-10, which is the split of strategies, the portfolio of strategies that we talk about at Progressive. But if you don't want to do all of those strategies, if you can't make up your 70-20-10 because there's a particular strategy you really want to do, but it just doesn't work in your area. And by the way, as I'm, I'm just going to repeat this because you need to need to understand this. Most strategies will work in your area. The only one which I think is a bit questionable is probably doing buy-to-lets with a BRR. So have a look. If you really want to do a strategy which does not work in your area, then you may have to have a 70-20-10 where part of your 70-20-10 can be local and part of your 70-20-10 can be somewhere else. And by the way, that's okay. I think it's just being pragmatic. It'd be great if you could do it near a home, but if you can't do it near a home, then you've just got to have the processes and the systems in place to support you doing it away from home. That's got to be your choice. There are no hard and fast rules on this. You do whatever works for you. So if you are going to do a strategy which doesn't work in your area, the second part of the question is, do you need to relocate? Well, I would say, no, you don't need to relocate. This is what I'd be thinking. I'd be thinking, can I find a JV partner, for example, who I trust, who can help source properties for me in an area where I'm not located? So I don't have to move. If I can find somebody who I can trust to source the properties for me, and by the way, it could be a JV partner. It could even be a, a deal packager. But 
there's all sorts of scope within the progressive community if you join the community if you get yourself onto the facebook group for example you're going to find people who are going to be trustworthy who will source you deals and that's a way forward then you don't have to relocate for example or you could just learn an area at a distance at masterclass we show you how to do a very quick easy analysis of areas which i think blows people's minds with how simple it is but it's so effective which means that within just a couple of minutes you can look at somewhere where you've never even been before and you can pretty much understand how the property market works there so there's all sorts of ways that we can do this so you could get other people to help you or you could do it at a distance yourself or just going back to the question could you relocate well of course if you felt that you wanted to you could relocate i just don't think you have to relocate but again, we have people who come on Masterclass who do. We've had people who've relocated from London to Peterborough, people who've relocated from London to the Midlands. Uh, Rob Smallbone, who I hope to get onto the uh, podcast soon, uh, he relocated from Reading up to Hull so that he could build his deal packaging business, for example. And all of this is good stuff. But do you need to do that? Not necessarily. Obviously, it depends what your bigger picture is. I think, you know, for somebody like Rob Smallbone, he wanted to put together a business, so that's fine. If he had just been investing for himself, probably he wouldn't have needed to. He could have done it remotely from Reading, but still bought in Hull. So that's the answer to the question, I think. So basically, quick summary, most strategies work everywhere. The only one which I think is a bit iffy is probably doing buy-to-lets the BRR way. If you want to do buy-to-lets the BRR way and you're in an area where it doesn't work, You may want to find a JV partner who can help source properties for you or a deal packager who you can trust who will help source properties for you. Or you could learn an area remotely and then you could buy them yourself. Do you have to relocate? No, you don't have to relocate. But should you wish to relocate and if you think that's going to help your business, then that's all good as well. So there we are. Hope that helps. By the way, I should say before we move on from that question, of course, that if you want to get into the sort of nitty gritty and theory of gold mine areas and then follow it up with some great practical stuff then of course come along to masterclass get yourself enrolled we'd love to see you there so question number two where do investors buy property from that's an interesting question where do investors buy property from gosh there's so many places where we can find our properties and i'm guessing that the gist of this question is how can i source my properties Well, again, this is all going to depend on your strategy. I keep saying this. If you've listened to the answer to these questions, it's like a broken record. But it's true, isn't it? Because if you've got different strategies, that's going to affect how you do anything in property. Everything you do in property is pretty much going to be dictated by the strategy you choose. So let's just start at the sort of the bottom of the progressive pyramid of strategies and think about buy-to-lets. Where are we going to find our buy-to-lets? Well, there's probably three main places most people would think of. Uh, if we if we sort of had a bit of a group discussion about this and place number one is going to be estate agents and it's absolutely true that most of my buy to let deals have come from estate agents and that surprises a lot of people because I think they imagine that I'm you know if you're going to be a full-time professional property investor you must be doing all these clever creative deals well there's certainly a place for clever creative deals but if you've ever met me face to face you'll know that one of my guiding principles in life is if something's easy or if something's hard, I'll try and see if I can make the easy thing work. Why? Because life's too short to get bogged down in nonsense, as far as I'm concerned. And one of the easiest ways that you're going to find your properties is by going to the estate agents. Particularly, and remember, I'm talking now at the bottom of the pyramid, buy to lets. Now, the, the common sort of retort to that is, but surely 
estate agents have preferred buyers. And if you're not one of the preferred buyers, you're not going to get the best deals. To which I... If you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. answer well that doesn't make any sense to me because just think of it this way how can the estate agent actually know what sort of deals i want very often the estate agent when they put a, a deal in their bottom drawer and they keep it for a preferred buyer it may not even be a, de a deal that fits your strategy you know if i'm looking for buy to lets but they're keeping aside something which is great for a flip do i care no of course not it wasn't wouldn't be one which i'd have bought anyway because i'm after buy to lets so i think that that's kind of a bit of a non-point the other th answer I'd give to that is that in your area, you're going to have, what, a dozen estate agents, and each of those estate agents are going to have 50 or 60 or 100 properties on their books. There's more than enough properties. And by the way, properties are coming onto the market and coming off the market all the time. So there's always going to be stuff out there that you can buy. Your job as the investor is to go through the details and to go through and see whether the properties match your strategy and to talk to the agents and to find out whether you can get them at figures which stack up for you. So first and foremost, estate agents. Absolutely, I love estate agents. Now, when I go to the estate agents, I'm going to be a little more sophisticated than just looking in the window, looking at a picture, seeing a house which I like the look of, thinking, oh, yeah, I know that. That's just around the corner from where I live. That'll make it really nice and easy to manage. I'll go and buy that one. And then offering 5% off and thinking I've got a bit of a deal if it's accepted. No, we can do much more than that. We have to do our due diligence and we want to get the deals that stack up. But they're definitely out there. So don't ever write off the estate agent. Now, I mentioned the, the more creative ways. And of course, you can find your buy-to-lets using creative strategies as well. All the stuff which we talk about at Masterclass and Guerrilla Marketing, which is things like leafleting and bandit boards and newspaper ads and you know putting notes in shop windows postcarding it's called and you know sign writing your car should you wish to all of that good stuff which is a little bit edgy but that will produce results and leads as well why because you're getting direct to vendor and the vendor if they want to sell and if they're the type of vendor who doesn't want to sell through an estate agent then you're leaving that possibility open of meeting them as well and it's a great thing, actually, because you'll be able to help people. Usually the sort of people who are going to ring you because of your guerrilla marketing are going to be people who have a bit of a problem. Quite often it's a financial problem, and you can go and have a cup of tea with them, and you can sit down and work out a solution to their problem which benefits them and which benefits you. And very often when you get the phone call, you're not going to know until you get around there and have the cup of tea and have the chat exactly what kind of a deal you're going to be doing. So, yeah, all of that stuff is where I'd be looking for properties as well. 
And then the other way, which I think a lot of people would instantly sort of say, oh yeah, well let's go to a property auction because we've all watched Homes Under the Hammer, haven't we? The thing is though, I think Homes Under the Hammer, great program though it is, it's probably a little bit selective. Uh, does every deal work out? Well, no, n not necessarily. Could it p potentially make us think that there's a good chance that most deals will work out? Well, possibly. But, you know, I'm not against auctions, but I am against auctions for people who are relatively new in property because there's a lot of groundwork to do before you go to the auction. Before you go to the auction, you need to know what you're buying. The reason why the property is in the auction is because there's going to be some kind of a problem. It could be a potential def a title defect. It could be a structural problem. Or they may not be a problem per se, but maybe it's just stuck on the market and they haven't sold it. Or maybe they need to sell it quickly. But it's, it's usually there's something unusual around the circumstances. Otherwise, they're, somebody would just be putting it into the estate agent, wouldn't they? So you need to be careful. You need to know what it is you're buying. So you need to probably have a survey, which is going to cost you a few hundred quid. If you are successful and you buy the property, you might have to complete within 21 days or 28 days, depending upon what the terms and conditions of that particular auction house are. So you've got to have your finance lined up, which means you've probably got to pay a broker. You've probably got to have a mortgage valuation and pay a bank. All of this stuff needs to be done in advance. And then, of course, just to make sure that there aren't any little sort of funny wibbly wobbly bits on the title, you need to talk to a solicitor who will look at the legal pack. Most auctioneers make the legal pack available usually online nowadays, so you can download it. But if you look through it yourself, unless you're in prop been in property a long, long time, and even if you have been in property a long, long time, you're probably still not qualified to do this. You probably need to get a solicitor to look over the paperwork just to make sure that there's nothing nasty lurking in there, which you wouldn't have noticed. Because if there is something nasty lurking in there, you're probably not going to be able to raise your finance. So all of this needs to be dealt with before the auction, and it could cost you over a thousand pounds, and you may not even get the chance to bid. I went to buy it at an auction. Well, I've, this has happened to me several times actually, where I've been to buy it at an auction, feeling quite confident, thinking I was going to get the property, and I haven't even had the chance to bid. If I'd spent out more than a thousand pounds in fees, and I hadn't got the chance to bid, why didn't I get the chance to bid? By the way, just to be clear on that, is because there were so many excitable people at the auction who wanted to buy that property that they all bidded before I got a chance to bid, and they all went past the maximum price I would have paid for the property. Crazy stuff, but it happens all the time. So I could have paid out more than a thousand pounds and not even put my hand up. So that's the difficulty. So that's why I wouldn't be looking for properties necessarily at an auction. So that's just buy to lets, and that's just three ideas on buy to lets. But I mean, there's other places we could buy them. At the moment, we know that, for example, because of Section 24, and I'm sure by now we all know what Section 24 is. If you don't, then Google it. But it's all about the tax changes around uh, mortgage interest relief. There's a lot of landlords, particularly accidental landlords, who are looking to sell up. So you could go and talk to letting agents. They'll know which of their clients want to sell up. I would have thought you can go to landlords' meetings and see if you can talk to landlords and find the distressed landlords who want to sell up. So you go direct to landlord and just buy investment properties direct. All of that good stuff. There's so many different ways we can find properties. Again, it's going to be very, very strategy related. So, for example, just think about your strategy. Where are you going to find your HMOs? Well, probably the starting point, the raw material of your HMO is potentially just going to be like what would look on other days like a normal buy-to-let. But maybe you can see because of the floor plan it's possible to turn a three-bedroom terrace into a five-bedroom HMO, for example. 
So you, you may just be finding that at the local estate agents, or you may be getting those from distressed landlords. So many different opportunities. Things like commercial conversions, obviously very particular types of property. You need to go to particular types of agent. You're going to go to a commercial agent. When you're starting out, you probably want to go to your local commercial agent, not your big national agents. Why? Because the local commercial agent's more likely to want to deal with you than a big national agent. So where do property investors get their properties? It all depends on the strategy, but when you know what your strategy is, it'll make it much easier and much clearer for you to actually know that. Ah, question number four today. How can I spot a good area? What signs are there that the values will rise in that area? How can I spot a good area? What signs are there that the values will rise in that area? Well, the person who asked this question probably wouldn't be expecting this answer because I don't really want to talk... Well, I will talk about the second part, which is about how the value's rising. But first, let's deal with this first bit about how can I spot a good area. Well, I would suggest that an area is only a good area if it's the type of area where the strategy that you've chosen actually works. And so that's not really got anything to do with values going up or down at all, has it? The starting point is, again, going back to the earlier question, thinking about what strategy it is you actually want to undertake, and then going from there. Because it doesn't matter how much prices are going up, if the strategy you want to do doesn't actually work there, it doesn't make it a good area. And perhaps a good example of this is perhaps going back to our old anomaly of BRR buy-to-lets in London. Yes, values will probably rise in London over the long term, over the next 10, 20, 50 years. But does that mean that it's a good area for BRR? Well, not really, because the yields are too low. The prices are probably too high. If you think about the range I just told you about, 40 to 160 grand, it doesn't fit. So the starting point has to be in spotting a good area is to spot an area where your strategy works. I would say simple as. Does that make sense? Hope it does. But what signs are there that the area's value will rise? And by the way, do we want the values to rise? This is another thing which I think we sort of maybe get a little bit too focused on in property. And there is an argument that we should be concentrating on cash flow before we think about capital value increases. We can't influence the way that the market moves. There's all sorts of things that can happen. We're just at the time of recording this, and I hate to say this because you may be listening to this in a year's time and thinking, oh, don't even remind us, Peter. But we've had the whole Brexit thing. What is that going to do to values? Well, maybe if you're listening in a year time, you'll be able to tell us. I don't know. It may not be good. But there we are. That's something we've got to cope with. The way that the Bank of England react to whatever happens in the financial markets with interest rates and all that kind of stuff is going to affect values. Government policy potentially could affect values. All of this stuff comes into it. But we, as individual investors, this is the point. We cannot influence that. The only thing that we can do with any certainty is to buy properties where the figures stack up and where we can make sure that we have the right cash flow. So cash flow is the foundation of everything. Now, if values rise as well, then I guess that's a good thing. Why? Well, it depends, doesn't it? I'm saying it's a good thing. It's not necessarily. Supposing you find a nice little gold mine area where you want to buy lots of buy-to-lets and you buy half a dozen and you think, this is fantastic. I can't wait to get up to 20 or 30 or 50 or whatever you think you need to do in alignment with your business plan. And then suddenly values start kicking off and you cannot buy as many properties at the right price to make the figure stack, you may think actually that value's going up isn't a great thing. 
So we've got to, again, we've got to understand what we're actually trying to achieve. We can't just take it as, you know, it's a good thing that values are going up or it's a bad thing that values are going down. Again, if values go down, what does that mean? Well, it gives us an opportunity to buy. We can buy cheaper. Now, it may be that we're buying with the expectation that in the long term, and long term could be 10, 20, 50 years, that values will go back up again. I don't know, but we need to think about this stuff. So let's just not assume or make blanket assumptions. Let's question everything and actually work out what it means to us. But if we wanted to buy somewhere where, for example, we just wanted to buy a few buy-to-lets and we were quite happy if values did go up, how would we know if values are going to go up? Well, I don't know. There's probably 101 different answers to this, and I'm just going to give some very basic answers. But values tend to go up where there's improvements in infrastructure. So, for example, we know that there's going to be a new road or there's going to be a new shopping centre or there's going to be a new hospital or something like that, or even new industry coming into an area, which I guess in this day and age we don't make very much anymore. So it's probably not going to be necessarily a manufacturer. We could, in fact, just call that sort of new businesses coming into the area. Maybe it's, I don't know, a, a telephone sales place. I don't know what it's going to be. But, you know, just some big business coming into the area, maybe that's going to have an impact on values, all that kind of stuff. Another thing that we can look for, apart from infrastructure, is looking to see how different cities actually work in the context of how suburbs fit together and relativities between suburbs. I remember almost buying, and I, I hate using that word, I almost bought a lovely property in a suburb in Nottingham about 20 years ago. And I didn't do it, and I wished I had. But this particular suburb, it wasn't the best, it wasn't the worst, but it was right next door to a suburb, an area of Nottingham, which was quite well healed and where prices over time had risen very strongly. And it was inevitable, I think, looking back now with hindsight, that the effect of that was going to be that prices would ripple out from this very expensive suburb into into the suburb next door and people who couldn't afford to buy in the expensive suburb would buy in the suburb next door and push the prices up. And that's exactly what happened. So we could call that gentrification. Look for areas which are improving or which could improve. Look for areas which are close to the already expensive areas, but which are still a bit down at heel, because what generally happens is those areas in time become more attractive to the people who can't afford the expensive area, but they want to live in a decent area. So they'll come in and they'll start improving the housing stock and the area gentrifies and increases in value. So that's the kind of thing I'd be looking at. The other thing which we can do, which is also quite an interesting and analytical tool, and by the way, I wouldn't say this is a hard and fast rule, but you can think about this, is just to look back through historic data and see where prices have tended to rise, see where they've tended to rise quicker, see where prices have tended to stagnate or even if they've fallen where they've fallen the most before they've recovered. Because you can usually tell from historical trends what's going to happen. Now, it's not a hard and fast rule because things do change, you know, for all the reasons I've just talked about. You know, policies can change, new businesses can move around the country or re, you know, start up somewhere, and that can influence things. But a foundational thing, just look and see what's happened in the past. Because generally speaking, the past can be a good guide to the future. If you find an area where prices have always gone up strongly, 
you can pretty much assume that they're probably going to keep going up strongly in the future unless something very dramatic happens to stop them going up strongly in the future. A good example of that is like London in the southeast. If you said to me, Peter, I understand your warnings about capital growth, that you can't count on it, you can't influence it, but if you had to invest for capital growth over the next 50 years, where would you invest? I'd probably be thinking somewhere like London or the southeast because it's always been the case that's gone well. By the way, I don't have a crystal ball and it may not continue into the future, so don't assume just because I've said that that it's going to be true. But that's what we could use as a sort of baseline. Think about how things have happened in the past and that might give you a clue. Next question. Are there other ways of making money from property beyond buying and selling and renting out? Well, yes, of course there are. If you don't want to buy and sell the properties, in other words, take ownership of a property, you could do deal packaging and sourcing, absolutely. And many people in the progressive community have deal packaging as part of their 70-2010. Why? Because there's that old conundrum, isn't there? We can go out and we can look at 40 properties and we might need to look at 40 properties in order to buy one. Or what are you going to do with the other 39 that you've looked at but you haven't bought? It may be that those properties are actually ideal for somebody else. By the way, how can that happen? How is it that somebody could want to buy a property which we don't want to buy? It sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? But we all buy for different reasons and we've probably all got different buying criteria. So just because a property doesn't work for you doesn't mean that it can't work for somebody else. And the classic example, which I've probably mentioned a few times on this podcast, but it's worth just chucking in there to remind everybody, is you may want to do, for example, the buy-to-let BRR model and refinance your money and use your money very efficiently. And so you may be looking for properties where the figures stack to allow you to do that. But you may come across a property which would make it somebody a nice little buy-to-let and all they, if, if, if all they wanted to do is just buy the property, put a tenant in and collect the income. And there's plenty of non-sophisticated, if that's the right word, and I don't mean that in the sense of the FCA regulation non-sophisticated, but there's plenty of people who are perhaps not so educated or not so bothered about being professional investors who would be quite happy just to own a house or a little flat or a couple of little flats or a couple of little houses just to make some extra income and to have a little bit of a nest egg for their pension. And all they're, all they're really worried about is just getting a little bit of return and a little bit of yield. So all of those properties could be packaged without you having to buy them and sell them. You could just do the deal and then sell the deal on. How do you do that? Well, you get it basically get the price agreed, get a solicitor lined up, maybe even get a mortgage broker lined up and then ask somebody to pay you a fee to take it all off your hands. We do a deal packaging course, by the way, which show you how to do that in detail and show you all the paperwork you need to make sure that nobody comes and nicks the deal off you. But is that doable? Well, of course it is. How else can we make money from property without buying and selling and renting out? Well, if you're going to buy a large number of buy-to-lets, for example, you may consider starting your own letting agency. There'd be a lot of good reasons for doing that. Rob and Mark, for example, they have progressive lets. They didn't start off as letting agents, but when their business got to a size where they had enough properties, they went and did a deal with a local letting agent and they became partners in the, in the business and they effectively have their own letting agency. You could do the same. Maybe you'll say to yourself, well, when I get to 50 buy-to-lets or when I get to 50 HMO rooms or when I get to 50 service accommodation rental units or whatever it happens to be, I'll start my own letting agency. And you could certainly do that. And then you could manage properties for other people, should you wish to. It's not everybody's cup of tea, but you could certainly do that. So that would be another way that you can make money in property. 
How else can you make money in property other than just buying and selling and renting out? Well, one thing, of course, which Progressive is very good at is educating people in property. So when you've got a couple under your belt, why don't you educate people? How could you do that? Well, you could be a mentor. But pe Peter, I've only got two properties. Why would anybody want me to be their mentor? Because you would be the perfect person to mentor somebody who's got no properties who wants to get to two properties. You only need to be a couple of steps ahead in order to be able to share your information with somebody. And by the way, it's one of those things which sounds a bit counterintuitive, but it's so true that many, many people would rather be mentored by somebody who is a bit like them, who's only just ahead of them, than to be mentored by somebody who's light years ahead of them in terms of their perception of what they've achieved. So for example, a beginner investor may prefer to be mentored by somebody who's only got five properties who can show them how to get from naught to five than to be mentored by somebody who's got 30 or 40 properties who they're a little bit in awe of and thinking, well, I've, I'm, you know, they're just beyond anything I can even begin to imagine at the moment. Now, of course, once they've gone from five to 10, they may be thinking, actually, I'd like to get to 20 or 30. I think I'll go and find a mentor who can get me up to 30. And so it builds up. So just because you're only starting out or just because you may feel you haven't got the experience, maybe you could do some education. Of course, Progressive have a whole training scheme where you can become a progressive trainer and talk about your property experiences and help train people. Uh, so there's, there's a whole avenue and a route to go down with that as well. How else could you make money from property without buying and selling and renting out? All sorts of stuff, I guess, really. I mean, even on the education side, there's writing books. Uh, if you go onto my website, here we are, the chance for a plug. I'm going to grasp it shamelessly, so apologies for this. But come onto my website, www.thepropertyteacher.co.uk, and you'll be able to buy my ebooks, which are all based on my experience in property, and hopefully will help you and inspire you and encourage you and show you how to do it. So you could write about your experiences and maybe sell that. Create your own podcast, create your own blog, so many different things that we can do in property which aren't just buying and selling. But if we're going to do it in a big commercial sense, I guess deal packaging is probably what the question is alluding to and no reason why we can't do that either. And the last question for today, should I only buy property I live near? Well, we've kind of covered this in part when we're thinking about strategies and regions, but let me just sort of get into the nitty gritty of this question, because what this is saying to me is that there's a presumption that we should only buy property which is located near us. Now, there are advantages for buying properties which are near us. And please don't misunderstand me. I totally get that. And if you can invest near where you live, that's probably going to be the best way of doing it. It's, but it's not necessarily going to be totally ideal. And I'll come to why I say that in a moment. But it makes sense, doesn't it? Because if we have properties in our local area and we know the local area, we'll know what's going on. If we've got local knowledge, we'll know where the infrastructure is going to be. We'll know the suburbs which are potentially going to gentrify. We'll perhaps know where to find the estate agents. We might even have a handle on values and not on rents. There's so much good stuff that we can use. We can, in a sense, we can leverage ourselves because we've got so much knowledge already. So that's got to make sense. And of course, if we're buying properties locally, it's going to save on travel time, all of that kind of good stuff. But there is also a downside. Our own Mr. Rob Moore, co-founder of Progressive, will say that every upside has a downside. And the downside of having properties near you, in my experience, and this is just me, in my experience, is when properties are located nearby, there's this, I don't know, it's, it's like this 
this drive, this feeling of guilt I was having that made me feel that I needed to be involved and I needed to fiddle and I needed to go and do stuff which I wouldn't normally do. And I ended up trying to manage my own properties because they were nearby. I don't want to manage properties. I, I don't like dealing with tenants. Many, many reasons for that. Come to Masterclass, I'll tell you all about it. But I don't like dealing with tenants. There's always the chance, actually, that you're going to go down to your local boozer for a pint and, and a pork pie or whatever, and you're going to find your tenant there. And they're going to start wittering on about how they got a bit of, you know, the draft excluders come off the letterbox and they're chilly in their lounge. I don't know what it's going to be, but anything could happen. So I personally, I, I wouldn't want to do all that. I don't want to have properties near me. I'm very happy because my properties, and this may shock you if you don't know my story, but my properties are actually 150 miles from where I live. It takes me three and a half hours to drive there. It takes me three and a half hours to drive back. You'll guess from that I do not now manage my own properties. And that is better. I used to have local properties and I used to manage them. It was a nightmare. So now I just buy at a distance. I have a team in place who look after the properties. Most of the time I've got no clue what's going on. All I have to do though is just manage the team. The team manage whatever happens. And that's fine. And that works for me. And it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. The key thing is obviously having the right team. People that you can trust. People you know are going to do a good job. That's absolutely critical. But they're out there. It just takes time. Go and find them. So do we need to buy properties near where we live? It can be helpful. And going back to the earlier question about strategies, if there's strategies that work in your local area and you want to make them part of your 70 2010, do it. That's fine. But even if the properties were near where I lived, I'd probably still personally be involving a managing agent. I wouldn't want to manage them myself. And I'd probably want to buy them at just enough of a distance, maybe a couple of miles, two or three miles, five miles, to make sure that I'm not going to be there hobnobbing with the tenants. Why? But I'm just a bit shy, to be honest. Maybe that doesn't make any sense at all. And maybe it's an irrational fear of mine. But there we are. I'm just a bit of a shy person, despite the fact that I'm doing a podcast and despite the fact that I end up on a stage talking about property. Weird thing, isn't it? What life does to you. You need to work out what's best for you. So the answer to the question, should I only buy property I live near, has got to be a resounding not necessarily you know, you buy whatever's right for you. And if your strategy doesn't work where you live, then going back to the earlier question, then you may have no choice but to buy somewhere else anyway. And that's fine as well. Do whatever works for you. So there we are. I hope you found these uh, Q&As, this question and answer session interesting and helpful. I hope it inspires you. Remember, the main thing that you can do and which you must do is to go and take action. And just looking at the calendar, I know when this podcast is going to be coming out, we're going to be thinking about all of our New Year's resolutions soon, aren't we? If we're into New Year's resolutions. Personally, I'm not, but I'll tell you all about that in a future podcast. But I do love goal setting. Let me be clear. I love goal setting and I love planning. And we'll be thinking all about that. So hopefully, if these answers to the questions help you to sort of plan and set goals and maybe challenge you to think bigger and maybe even challenge you to take some action, then that's been good as well. Now, I said earlier, if you want to know more about me, come over to my website, www.thepropertyteacher.co.uk, thepropertyteacher.co.uk, and I'll see you there. I've got my blog, loads of good information. There's my resources, and uh, it'd be just great to see you there. So come over and visit me. Or until next time, we're together on the Progressive Property Podcast, which I look forward to next week as well. Here's to successful property investing.